And I know some would argue, well, you know, that's just that person, their idiosyncrasies, and they just got a crummy attitude, and that's just the way they are. Well, I'd argue this, not if they've given their life to Jesus. I mean, we all have our bad days. But if someone is habitually living in rebellion and defiance and disrespect, they don't have a behavioral issue. They got a heart issue. And Jesus is the master of giving heart transplants. Welcome to This Day in the Word with Pastor John Couch, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. It is a joy to have you listening today, and we pray that you will be encouraged, challenged, and motivated to live for God like never before. And now, with today's message, here's Pastor John Couch. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, and oh God, as we cry out to you, we, we ask you right now to do something that only you can do in this time. Lord, as we right now come together as one body and one accord, we unite our hearts and minds together right now, God, and Father, we plead with You to do a work that only You can do. Holy Spirit, we pray that You would move in power. Grab a hold of our hearts right now, O oh God, and make Yourself known in this place. O oh, Fathers, we yield ourselves to You. Reveal our areas of weakness and sin that we might be brought into union with You through confession and repentance. So Father, we ask that You would speak, that You would speak in a mighty way right now. Oh God, I pray You'd move me out of the way that we'd only see You and hear You and give me, O oh God, a divine unction from You. And whatever is accomplished today, O oh God, we will give You the praise. We will give You the glory. And we pray this in the mighty and the matchless name of King Jesus. Amen. Take your Bibles and let's turn together right now to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10 today. And as you're turning there, I wanted to ask a question. It's the message title, and the question goes like this, what are rescued people called to do? What are rescued, saved people called to do? In the midst of what's going on in our country and the chaos and the discord and the division and the rebellion and the defiance, the question we need to ask right now in this hour is simply, what are rescued people, saved people, called to do? If you are here today and you're truly rescued, you are truly saved. In other words, this, you've given your life to Jesus. Your life is no longer your own, but you've given it to Him. You are not called to do nothing. 
and you are not called to be nothing. In this world, in this time, for such a time as this to redeem the time, I pray we see from God's Word today, not man's opinion, but God's Word, I pray we'll see very clearly with unfogged lenses any cloudiness and murkiness, I pray, would be dispelled. And oh God, I pray right now you would show us clearly what we are called to do and what we're called to be. Greg Laurie said it like this. Some people like talking about their faith, but they don't like using it, end quote. Some people like talking about their faith. They talk a good game. But their actions don't mesh with their words. Let's lean in together right now, church. Let's lean in right now to God's Word. Let's wrestle with this text. I pray the Holy Spirit right now as we begin to read together, I pray that by His power, by His leading, by His anointing, that our intellect, yes, will be stirred, but I pray that our hearts will be stoked. I pray our hearts will be stoked for God's glory and moved, moved to action. And so let's take this biblical doctrine right now as we read 1 Peter chapter 2. 9 through 10. And let's drive it deep into the bedrock of our hearts. Here's what the Word of God says. 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 through 10. Listen closely and follow along in your Bible. But you are, very key, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That last phrase is a hallelujah shouting time moment. But now you have received mercy. I don't know about you, but right now I could begin to weep because I think of the mercy and the grace and the love of God as He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him commits their life to Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, the depths of the mercy of our great God, church. Praise the King Jesus. I want to go back for just a moment from our last time together and look in your Bible at verses 6-8 through eight of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. As we use this as our context, our launching pad, and here's what the Word says in verse 6, it says, for it stands in Scripture. We learned that we can stand on Scripture because it stands. 
Because the anchor of Scripture is anchored. It's true. It's real. It's God's Word. Regardless of who comes against it, regardless of who tries to say, look, it's not true. We know this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. And then the Scripture goes on in 1 Peter 2.6. It says this, Behold, Behold, I am laying in Zion. What a glorious picture. A stone, a cornerstone, chosen and prized. And whoever believes in Jesus, in the cornerstone, gives their life to Jesus, commits their life to Jesus, will not be put to shame. So the honor, verse 7, is for you. The honor the privilege, the exalting, if you will. The honor is for you who believe, who commit your lives to Christ. But wait a minute, there's a warning here. There's a warning, a dire warning. But for those who do not believe, for those who do not commit their lives to Christ, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone And here's the deal, right? Here it is. Listen closely, church. And He becomes a stone of stumbling to them and a rock of offense. They stumble. Why? Because they disobey the Word is what it says right here as they were destined to do. Oh, church, I don't know about you, but what a glaring warning that is to me. And I pray to you as well. That for those who do not believe, for those who do not commit their lives to Christ, He's a great offense to them. He's a stumbling block to them. They want religion. They don't want relationship. Jesus gets in the way of their plans. Jesus gets in the way of their schedule. Jesus gets in the way of their dreams. But for the true believer... Jesus becomes their plans. For the true believer, Jesus becomes their dream. For the true believer, Jesus becomes their schedule. And so as you see, as Peter in those three verses, six through eight, that we studied last time together, he laid out so beautifully what it looks like to believe in Christ the cornerstone or not believe in Christ the cornerstone. And by the way, as we looked at that last time we were together, we saw very clearly that the cornerstone of any structure is mission critical. And so many people today have chosen a different cornerstone, not the cornerstone, but an imitation, something that's false, a charade. And no wonder the walls of their life are crooked. No wonder the walls of their life are imploding. See, when you build your life on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ Life is still hard. It's still difficult. It can still be disappointing. But the walls of your life will be straight as you follow Him. The walls of your life will not implode because you're building on the solid rock. When the rains begin to pour and the ground begins to shake, your foundation, your cornerstone remains sure. And every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. 
So Peter takes those three verses by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and now today he fleshes this out. He makes these incredible statements in verses 6 through 8, and then all of a sudden in 9 through 10, he unpacks it even deeper when he says this in verse 9, but you are. (laughs) Don't miss that, church. But you are. Now remember this, he, he pivots for a reason. If you look back up at verse 8, he's just finished stating and explaining that for those who are lost, for those who reject Christ, he's an offense. He's a stumbling stone to them. Oh, they disobey. They're rebellious. They're stiff-necked. Their foreheads are brazen. And he says here to these believers, these Jews and yes, Gentiles, he's looking and saying, wait a minute, I know you're suffering greatly. I'm sure you want to quit and throw in the towel. But he says, wait a minute, but you are. But you are not them. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your persecution, he says, look, you're not being disobedient. Oh, it's so glorious, church, isn't it? That in the midst of pain and difficulties that we get reminded who we are. So often it's easy in this life for believers, true believers, to forget not only who they are, but whose they are. Here Peter is saying, wait a minute, you're going through struggles and maybe that's you here today and you don't know up from down. You're ready to tap out. You're about ready to hit the done button. You're discouraged. You're in despair. You're walking through a dark night of the soul. And just like Peter said to them in that day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the written, living, breathing Word of God today, he's saying this to us, the New Testament believer as well. He's saying, but you are you are what is the question well think about it we're something and there's four things he lists here he goes all the way back to the old testament to bring this imagery and he takes the old testament imagery and he shows us as one commentator said for the true believer in christ the New Testament privileges of being a child of the King. And here's what he says so clearly in this unified attempt to take these people that are being scattered and they're under this persecution. He's saying, look, be unified. Be unified, but you, not just singular you, plural you, all of you, us, you, our church, the American church that's true and real in Christ, but you are what church? Number one, a chosen race. What's that mean? It simply means this, an elected people. He takes the Old Testament imagery and he applies it here to the New Testament believer and says, wait a minute, I want you to remember. Remember this. You're a chosen race. You are an elected people. Number two, you are a royal priesthood. A kingly priesthood that serves and worships King Jesus with direct access. The veil has been torn, and when the veil was torn, we now have a straight shot to the Father through the royal righteous blood of King Jesus. 
One commentator said it like this regarding the royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, they had a priesthood. But today, God's people are a priesthood. So glorious. Oh, we are an elected people. What a privilege. What an honor. Oh, wait a minute. We're a royal priesthood. We have direct access. What a privilege from our great heavenly Father. Number three, we're a holy nation. What on earth does that mean? It simply means this. We're to be set apart. As Israel in the Old Testament was this chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, we apply these things to our lives today for the true believer, not the false convert, but for the true believer. And right here we see that we're to be a holy nation. We're to be set apart. We're to be different. Not to blend in with the world. We're to be different in the workplace. We're to be different at the family reunion. We're to be different in what we read and what we watch and what we listen to. We're to be different how committed we really are. In a world that's off the rails and is not committed to anything, we must be the people of God who are committed. We say, you know what? Not on my watch. I'm all in for Jesus. I'm going to own the lostness of my street and my neighborhood. And if those people go to a godless hell, I'm going to be the one that at least, at a very minimum, lets them know that Jesus Christ loves them, He lives, He reigns, He rules, and He wants to have a passionate relationship with them. We don't stand back and just watch them go off a spiritual cliff. No, we're different. We're not conformed to the world We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're in the world, but not of it. As one person said, we have contact with the world, but we're not contaminated by the world. And yet so many professing believers have a lot of contact. And the reality, there's a lot of contamination by the world. Well, what's number four? A people for his own possession. I love this. His own. God did not give his only son so that you could get fire insurance and then go run around and be someone else's possession. He gave his only begotten son for you that you could and yes, be freed. Free eternally. That you will spend eternity with him through the blood of Jesus Christ, but He didn't set you and I free so that we could go on a sinning rampage and run loose like hooligans while we live on this earth. Of course not. When Christ redeems and saves a person, the blinders are removed. They see clearly who they once were and who they now are, and they don't want to go back to the sewer. They love to be His possession. Because when God totally saves you, He now totally owns you. And by the way, when He totally saves and totally owns, that person greatly desires to be His possession. There's a hunger and a thirst to just long to be His possession. Why? Because you see what great worth you are to God that He gave willingly. 
His most precious possession, His Son. That as you believe in Him, as you commit your life to Him, as you surrender everything to Him, you see that He proved it to you and given your life back to the One who now owns you. It's not a dirge. It's not a chore. No, it's a, oh, we get to do this. We get to give our lives back to the One who took our place and stood in our stead and bore our sin and appeased God's wrath. We give our lives to King Jesus, our owner and possessor. So church, here we see in this one verse that we become something. But now here is the answer to our question originally. We now do something. We now do something. What do we do? Well, look at your Bible. That you may proclaim. Wow. Wait a minute. I thought that I raise a hand, say a prayer, do a cartwheel, sign a card, walk an aisle, get dunked, shout hallelujah, wipe my forehead and say, well, I'm glad I got that over with. Now we can get on to what I'm going to do next. No. Not a chance. Not for the true believer. The true believer is now this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this people for God's own possession through Jesus Christ. And why? That we might proclaim, yes, that we might herald, that we would go out and shout but in a simplistic way, not in a crass way, but in a very simplistic way, it means this to advertise. Think about this for a moment. If you have really been saved from something of danger that you cannot articulate fully in the human thought process, wouldn't you, wouldn't I, be heralding, be shouting, be advertising to everyone we can think of how we've been rescued and saved. And yet the reality, if the date is correct, is that very few professing believers ever share their faith. No, we are called church to proclaim with joy, with excitement. Oh, I have been ripped from the grip of the enemy. I have been snatched from the clutches of Satan himself. And I have been what? Oh, if you're the true believer, you have now been conveyed into the glorious security of King Jesus that you can never be snatched from. If it's real and true. So what do we proclaim? Well, Peter gives us three things right here in verse 9. That we might proclaim, that we might celebrate, that we might herald and shout and, yes, advertise. Not just in the church house, by the way. But out in the neighborhood, to the world, at the workplace, at the family reunion. What do we do? Well, here's the three things from your verse. Verse 9, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him, the praises, the virtues, the qualities of God, who called you out of darkness, who wooed you, who bid you to come forth out of wickedness and spiritual blindness from the grip of Satan into what church? Into His marvelous light, into the awestruck wonder of His holiness and freedom in Christ. Oh, when is the last time that you just stood in awe of God saving you? Oh, when is the last time that your soul began to sing like never before? When is the last time that you had a skip in your step and you just stood amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene? Oh, when is the last time, church? When is the last time that you shared your glory story? Our lives, church, should radiate. Our lives should radiate the light, the marvelous light that we now walk in if it's a true conversion, a true regeneration. That's why key number one is so important. I want you to write this down. Key number one. Make this very personal. Key number one. When Christ transforms my life, comma, I am now His possession that becomes something, comma, that does something, comma, for His glory. Key number one, write it down in your notes. Here it is. When Christ transforms my life, my life, thank you, Jesus, I am now His possession. Take my life, Jesus. Use it for your glory. That becomes something that does something for His glory. Did you notice this, church? That what we become precedes what we do. Don't miss this. Mission critical. What we become in Christ precedes what we do for Christ. Here's one of the greatest challenges in the American church. We have a lot of tares in the pews. False converts in the pews. Unregenerated people in the pews. And what often happens to attract a crowd because we feel successful when we pack out a building, we pat ourselves on the back, We go, wow, we must be doing really good. We end up unwittingly buying into the lie from the enemy, being deceived that, hey, let's just tell everyone what to do for Jesus while we skip the real important step of pleading with them to give their lives to Jesus. And what happens is that seeming success can last for a moment, but at some point, the house and the life and the ball team and the business and the church that has been built on popsicle sticks will come crashing down for what it really is. As I was processing that, I was thinking of some verses to challenge and encourage us from God's Word under this key number one. 
and again, thinking very, very intently on what we become precedes what we do. It's all about outflow. We talk about this all the time. It's outflow from a union with Christ. When we are united with Christ, we don't have to go around trying to tell people, hey, this is how you be a better parent, and this is how you handle your finances, and this is how you get along at the family reunion. We don't have to tell people that because if they're united with Christ and they're walking in the Spirit, they will know how to accomplish all three of those different subject matters. But when they're not united to Christ, no wonder we're trying to explain to people how to do all these things. Well, here in God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 through 20, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Paul is writing to this messed up church in Corinth, and he writes here regarding sexual sin in verses 12 through 18. But he puts the icing on the cake with these powerful words that, yes, apply, church. They apply to sexual sin, but they also apply to the totality of the true believer's life in all situations. And this is what Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. He says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Question mark. And then he says these words, you are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought with price. So glorify God in your body. Do you see the dots connecting church between 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and those four Old Testament concepts that apply to the true believer in the New Testament as well? And that last one of the four there was this, that you're a people for God's own possession. And here now in the New Testament, from that Old Testament pole, if you will, that Peter's using and deriving from, we go back to 1 Corinthians, and Paul now writes, and he says these words. He says very, very pointedly, you are not your own. You were bought with price. Oh, church, my heart breaks because there's so many people today. The world, yes, this is how they behave. But there's so many professing believers that they think their lives are still their own. And no wonder their lives are off the rails. No wonder there's so much challenge in marriages and homes today because their life is not centered on the cornerstone Jesus. They don't get that they were bought with a price. They don't understand their rescue. They've professed this verbally, but they've never really given their life to Christ. It's all external, but nothing has happened internally. It's vacant, it's void, it's hollow, it's dead. You're listening to This Day in the Word, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. All of Pastor Couch's messages are archived and are free to download at thisdayministries.org. 
In addition, you can share your prayer requests with us via email. Our email address for prayer requests is prayer at thisdayministries.org. That's prayer at thisdayministries.org. And now, back to This Day in the Word with Pastor John Couch. And Paul here reminds us that we are bought with the most precious blood that's ever been shed there on Calvary through Jesus Christ. And how can anyone in their right spiritual mind look at that sacrifice and not begin to be broken with contrition and humility and gratefulness and thankfulness and say, look, I'm going to live all the days of my life for the one who totally set me free. See, when Christ transforms my life, your life, we are now His possession. That we become something, we're His. Our identity's in Him. That we go and do something. We proclaim the glorious excellencies of our great God and how we were saved. We share our glory story. And we do it all for His praise and for His glory. I was thinking about that thought, church. and You know, one of the texts in Scripture that has greatly impacted me over the years, and I believe greatly proves this one point of what it looks like when someone responds to being Christ's possession and being all in, totally all in. That's from Luke chapter 5. Write that down in your notes, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I want to read this to you, and I want you to meditate on it as I read, and I pray you read it deeper later today. Luke chapter 5, listen to verses 1 through 11. Listen to what it looks like when someone gets it, that their life is no longer their own. Here's what the Word of God says in Luke 5, 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the Word of God, that's a good thing, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Now, very important point here. Don't miss that thought. Catalog that. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, interesting, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he, mean Jesus, sat down and taught the people from the boat. The boat was his pulpit here today. Verse 4, And when he had finished speaking as Jesus, he said to Simon, He looks to Simon, and he says this. He says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, pause here for a moment. If you know anything about fishing back in that day, it's not like like how we fish in our day. Uh, Back in that day, uh, they didn't have rods and reels and fancy boats with big outboard motors or big, big boats that go out into large bodies of water that have massive outriggers and winches that uh, crank up these big nets. No, this was old school fishing. 
And so they had these large, large nets, and they would take one end of the net often, and they would put a stake in the ground, and they would tie that net to that stake on the seashore. And as they were fishing, which by the way was at night because all the fish would migrate up towards the shore, they would take this large, massive net, and in a semicircular motion, picture this church, they would sweep back and forth from the shoreline where it's anchored at one axis point, and they would gather their fish. Well, here they are, and they're washing their nets. And Peter hears the command from the Master, King Jesus. Then what does it say here? Verse 5, he says, And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. So here Peter is, and they fish on the seashore, one axis point, one big net, semicircular motion, they sweep back and forth, and Jesus comes along, by the way, a carpenter who's telling a professional fisherman how to fish. Go figure. A guy with a hammer is trying to tell a fisherman with a net how to fish. doesn't make any sense. That's the whole point. Typically, when Jesus speaks and he asks us to go do something, it doesn't always make sense to the flesh. And he looks at Peter and he says, here, I want you to go out to the deep. It's now later in the day, and the fish are out deep, but you don't take a big net and a boat out there and catch all these fish. That's not how you fish. This is crazy. So Peter hears it, and he rationalizes it right there. He said, Master, we've toiled all night, and we've caught nothing. we got a big bag of nothing, Jesus He hears it, he rationalizes it, he makes excuses, and then look what he says, but at your word, Jesus, I will let down the nets. I'm going to drop the nets. I'm going to launch out into the deep where there's nothing to hang on to. I'm going to go at your word. It doesn't make any sense. There's nothing to hang on to. I can't hang on to anyone else. I can't hang on to my own seeming security and what I can generate. I'll just go out into the deep. I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to drop the nets. Verse 6 of Luke 5 says, And when they had done this, and when Peter obeyed, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. In verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats. Wait a minute. They've been fishing all night. They haven't caught Jack. And now they obey Jesus out in the deep where there's nothing to hang on to except their faith. And they're filling their boats with fish. The nets are breaking and the boats right here, it says, they begin to sink. See, Peter heard it, and he rationalized, and he made excuses, and then he obeyed, then he obeyed, and that's when God showed up. That's when God did a miracle. Do you see this church? Obedience precedes the blessing, not the other way around. It's way too easy to stand on the bank and go, Lord, I'll get in the Jordan, but I first want you to part the Jordan. 
No, often God says, get in the Jordan first. And then I'll part the waters. When the soles of the feet of the priest touch the water first, then the water will stand as a heap, not the other way around. Obedience precedes the blessing. And then you see right here, Peter says these words, O Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The humility comes onto his heart, envelops his heart, drives deep into his heart. And verse 9 says, For he and all who are with him were astonished. They were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And here's the key verse. Here's the key verse, verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. Oh, church, if you want to know what it looks like to understand and to embrace that your life is no longer your own, can you imagine this? Your livelihood are boats and nets. And you see Jesus do something amazing and he has your attention, and you see you are now his possession, and you see what you're called to be and what you're called to do. Oh, we need to be like Peter in this instance, that we just drop our nets, we drop our boats, we drop everything, and we just follow Jesus. That's what it looks like right there, to be determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right now, as we're processing this church, I want us all over the room, I want us to ask ourselves right now, just ask yourself, pray right now with me that the Lord will, will clothe us, clothe us in His love, clothe us in His mercy, clothe us in His grace, clothe us in boldness and courage, Clothe us in the desire to obey without any excuses. Clothe us in the spiritual armor. Because Peter now goes forth in this last verse, verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. And he now gives a beautiful back and forth to explain to his reader then and to us today. He shows something so, so beautiful when he says these words in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did you catch that, church? Again, he's driving this point home to these discouraged believers. He's saying, don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Don't wave the white flag. Hey, we've all been there. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you are so discouraged and God's saying, hold on. Help's on the way. Oh, while you're waiting, which by the way is work and it's worship and it's worth it in the end. Here's what's so glorious in that waiting period. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not, past tense, but now you are. Do you see the parallel back to the first part of our point here in the message today from verse 9? 
Look here in verse 9 again. So beautiful. But you are these four things from the Old Testament. Go now to verse 10. Here it is. I love this so beautifully. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Wow. Wow. Once you had not past tense received mercy, but now you have. But now, do you see this? You are, and now you have. See, who you are precedes what you possess. When Christ possesses you, and you're now His, now you'll possess the beautiful privileges in Christ to be obedient and to live a life pleasing to Him. And all praise be to Jesus for the mercy that He sheds in our lives each and every day. But now, but now, two of the most mission-critical words in these Scriptures. But now. All of us, if we were truthful, could give a laundry list of who we were. But everything changes when we say two words. But now. Church, I want us to be encouraged. I want us to be strengthened. And I want us to write down this key number two, our final key. Again, make this personal. Own it. Here it is. When Christ transforms my life, I clearly see who I used to be, comma, now whose I am, who owns me, comma, and what I have now graciously received. Key number two, write it down. Make it personal. When Christ transforms my life, I clearly see who I used to be, comma, now whose I am, who owns me, comma, and what I have graciously received. It's interesting when you look at this verse, once you were not and had not, but now twice, we see so clearly past, we see present, and we know the future in Christ. And here's the glorious point in this, that what you do is an outflow of your union to Christ. Now, this is something to celebrate, church. This is so glorious. Who we used to be. The true believer has received mercy from God. The true believer has been spared from the wrath of God. The true believer has been spared from the fist of God. Oh, that is something to shout, to herald, to celebrate, and to advertise. Amen? Because there's no such thing, church, as a habitually prideful, habitually selfish, habitually disrespectful Christian. Those are all contradictions in terms. That's not walking in the Spirit. That's walking with the enemy. That's dancing with the enemy. That's playing with the enemy. That's not what God has called us to do. Again, going back 
to Paul, going back to the church in Corinth, which was so messed up. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, again, this time verses 9 through 11, 9 through 11, listen to what Paul says here. He reminds them of something that is so paramount in the true believer's life. He says these words, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Wait a minute. He's writing to a church, and he's telling them to not be deceived. What does that tell us deductively? It tells us this. We can say we're all in for Jesus. We can be inside a church, and the reality is we can still be deceived. Paul says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a list, isn't it? There's a whole bunch more that could be added to the list, but that's a powerful list there. What a warning that is. But look at verse 11, and this is so key. Paul reminds them, he says this, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. Some of you were on this list is what he's saying, comma, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit, capital S, of our God. Praise be to God. All of us who are true believers in the Lord, we've committed our lives to Him. All of us can shout this phrase, and such were us. Maybe not on that list, but we got a whole other list of sin over here that such were us. But we were washed. We were washed by the blood of the Lamb. We were sanctified. We were justified. Did you catch this, church, when you read this in 1 Corinthians? Fleshing out this 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, this is so important. From 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, Paul says, and such were some of you past tense, but this is so glorious too, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Just like that old sin is in the past, there was a marker, we got washed, we've been sanctified, and we are being sanctified, we've been justified, we've been declared righteous, and when that has happened, that marker in the true believer's life, and now we're moving forward, the past is redeemed, the present, as we say, is secure, and the future is in God's hands. Praise be to Jesus for the love that is so steadfast that our lips shall praise His name. Amen. And that's how great our God is. And by the way, again, when Peter is talking about you, he's talking in the plural. You as in the church, the believers, Paul here, and such were some of you, plural. Do you see the unity that is 
pushed here? Do you see the unity that's championed? Do you see the unity that is so deeply encouraged and desired because unity is so important in the body of Christ? In a disunified world, the body of Christ must be unified under the blood of Christ. I know some would argue, well, you know, that's just that person, their idiosyncrasies, and they just got a crummy attitude, and that's just the way they are. Well, I'd argue this, not if they've given their life to Jesus. I mean, we all have our bad days, but if someone is habitually living in rebellion and defiance and disrespect... They don't have a behavioral issue. They got a heart issue. And Jesus is the master of giving heart transplants. Oh, I pray as we meditate on these truths from God's Word that we'll understand the deepness of His mercy. You know, one of the best ways that I can explain these verses from 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11, and even back to 1 Corinthians Peter chapter 2, verse 10. I want to give you a quote from my future daughter-in-law that shared this with our family here recently. And this is from a foreign Christian politician. He's not here in the West in America, but he's overseas. And this is what he said. Christianity is under attack. In the East, it's a humanitarian crisis. But in the West, America... It's an identity crisis, end quote. Wow, wow. We are in an identity crisis. We don't know what we're supposed to do because we don't know whose we are. We're so busy hanging on to ourselves while raising a hand for Jesus. No wonder things are in chaos. No, Jesus wants all of you, not some of you. The Bible says this, that you are either for him or against him. If you ride the fence, as was once said, you've got to remember that Satan owns the fence. We must remind ourselves, we must preach to ourselves, church, that our new identity is in Christ. We're his. And yet the identity crisis is only exacerbated as we attempt to hang on to self and hang on to Jesus. A house divided will not stand. That same principle holds true to an individual's life. An individual who's divided in their allegiances to self and to Jesus, at some point you've got to let go of one or the other. And by the way, when you do that, when you live with one hand on Jesus and one hand on the world, the ripple effect of your disobedience spreads to many people, and so do the consequences. The consequences are not singular in nature. The consequences are corporate in nature. That will spread like a toxic poison throughout your home and your business and your ball team and your church unless you repent. So listen here to Jesus speaking in John chapter 10, about this miracle of salvation, if you really want to understand what it looks like from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, that, that you once were, but now. 
that you once had not received mercy, but now you have. You once were not God's people, but now you are His people. If you really want to understand this miracle of salvation, listen carefully to John chapter 10. And this is what God's Word says. Jesus speaking. He says these two words out of the gate. Truly, truly. So when Jesus says truth, truth, uh, it's time to listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, make a note of that, but climbs in by another way, make a note of that, that man is a thief and a robber. Wow. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door, make a note of that, is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Oh, don't miss that. Verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So verse 7, so Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, truth, truth, I say to you, I, Jesus says, am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I, verse 9, am the door. He repeats it again. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. However, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I, Jesus says, came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Oh, church, do you see this? Jesus says, look, there's one door, there's one way to get in, and it's me. And if you're trying to climb in and climb over and go under and go around Jesus, you will never enter in. What a miracle of salvation. Jesus says, all that come to me hear my voice. They know my voice. Jesus said this in John 14, 6, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. For you teachers in the room today, you know this, that the, the is a definite article. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he wasn't saying he's a way, a truth, and a life. No, he's saying, look, there is only one way to the Father, and Jesus says this, it's through me and me alone. People here, they go, wait a minute, that sounds exclusive. It is there's only one way to God, and it's through Jesus. We aren't doing people any favors by pacifying, by dumbing down and watering down and saying, you know what, well, maybe we can get in another way. Not according to Scripture. If you're climbing over this way, going under that way, going around the back door trying to get in, you'll never get to the Father. And when you think about that concept, 
That means there are many, many people on the broad path that leads to destruction. And there's only a few on the narrow way that leads to life. See, that's why church, as we meditate and marinate on these Scriptures from 1 Peter chapter 2, 9-10, through 10, we must ask the takeaway question. And it's an important takeaway question. Because we're not called to blend in with the world. We're called to be different. And the question that I want to ask here in this takeaway moment is simply this. Am I seeking personal spiritual wellness? Am I, are you, are we seeking, are we pursuing personal spiritual wellness? Here's what happens. All day long, we're tempted to help everyone else get spiritually well. But so often, we don't help ourselves. You know, it's kind of like uh, the mechanic. You know, a lot of times the mechanic will have, uh, you know, a bunch of cars in his front yard up on blocks. A lot of times a doctor will be the one who's uh, not always in good physical condition. On and on we could go. So many times we're so close to something, but we don't realize the need that we ourselves begin to embrace it. Are you, am I, pursuing, seeking personal spiritual wellness? You guys ever went to an ATM machine before? I figured you had. Ever went there and put your card in and it spits out a little receipt that says insufficient funds? Well, I'm sure we've all been at least close to getting one of those, right? Amen? You know, your spiritual condition, my spiritual condition is kind of like an ATM. What you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. And so many people are doing absolutely nothing, zero, to invest in their spiritual condition. And then they go and they put in their spiritual debit card to take something out, especially when a crisis hits, right? When a crisis hits, God has our attention. Now all of a sudden we're back in church. Now all of a sudden we're praying. Now all of a sudden we're reading our Bibles. Now all of a sudden we're even showing up on Wednesday night discipleship time. God has our attention. And they put their spiritual card in there, their debit card of the bank of Jerusalem, and it spits out a receipt. Insufficient funds. God have mercy on our souls today. We have more access to resources that we can take advantage of to grow in our discipleship and our walk with the Lord. And so often we're so spiritually lazy as we coast through life with one hand on Jesus and one hand on self. Oh, I pray that as so many people are physically well, the reality, there are droves upon droves that are spiritually dying. And even as adults who profess Jesus, sometimes the way we talk and behave with the rebellious attitudes and again, the selfishness and the disrespect, 
And we push the envelope to see what we can get away with. Just like that rebellious child. Am I or are you seeking and pursuing spiritual wellness? So here's our action step as we close. Write this down. Action step. By the power of the Holy Spirit, not me, not you, it's only by the power of the Spirit, I embrace that biblical unity as a byproduct of denying myself. Write this down. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I embrace, I embrace it, that biblical unity is a byproduct of denying myself. Not denying you. It's real easy for me to deny you, for you to deny me, and we deny everyone else but ourselves. No, we look in the mirror and we go, I'm going to deny myself. Biblical unity is tethered to hearts that get it that it's not about us. It's God's purposes over personal preferences. If we're really going to be unified, we must be humble and selfless. How many families do you know that are unified and selfish? Not that many, right? Oh, sure, we have our moments. I'm talking about habitually. Just habitually selfish, and they're unified. Well, let's go to God's Word as we did many, 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 many weeks ago back in James. James chapter 3, 16 tells us very clearly from God's Word, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. If you live in an environment, whether it be your life, your home, your business, your ball team, and even your church, where selfishness and envy and jealousy exist on a habitual basis, there's not repentance, there's not confession of it, it's just endorsed, it's enabled, it's allowed, you're going to have confusion. Look at our country. This verse describes our country. We live in a selfish, jealous, envious culture it's applauded. It's endorsed. Hey, it's all about you. You just do whatever you want. You're not hurt anybody. There's no such thing as truth. You just live your life however you please. And look at the results. Now, I pray that we will embrace the truth of God's Word. I pray that the ground will begin to tremble under our feet. I pray that our eyes will begin to, to water and flow those streams of water as we are hearing the promptings that our hearts will be cut to the core, that our souls will begin to sing in such a way, that, that, that our hearts will begin to pound in such a way that as the Word of God is going forth, as we read it, as the pages are opened every day, as we come to church and, and hear the Word of God proclaimed and heralded and advertised, and, and we shout, Lord, we love You. We shout, Lord, that we can't believe You would do this for us. Oh, we say, Lord, You're so mighty to save. You're mighty to redeem. You're mighty to restore. Oh, God, rend us today. Rend the heavens and come down, oh, God. Show us Your glory. Show us Your power. Do a work, oh, God, only You can do. You know, I pray that as we humble ourselves in total yielding obedience, That as the Word is proclaimed, whether in your quiet time or whether in a pew, 
But I pray at some point, as the Holy Spirit takes over your heart, your mind, and your soul, you will leap to your feet. You will leap to your feet and say, that's what I want. That's the Jesus I'm going to follow from this day forward. And do so with a tenacity that even if none go with you, you're still going to follow Jesus. How about you today? Do you know this Jesus who is called the Christ? Have you given your life to Him today in total surrender, total abandon? If not, don't you think right now, right now is the time to get this straightened out. Oh, Father, we come before You and we worship You and we bow before You and we hunger for You and we thirst for You and in a dry and thirsty land that hates Jesus, we stand tall for the Gospel. So, Father, take this Word from Your Word. and Lord, I pray the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart have been acceptable to You, my Lord, my Rock, and my Redeemer. Do something powerful in this place today. Show Yourself mighty. Don't allow us to leave the same as when we came in but transform us right now into what You want us to be. And we'll give You all the praise and give You all the glory. And we pray this in the mighty and the matchless name of King Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to This Day in the Word, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. Don't forget that all of these messages are archived and are free to download at thisdayministries.org. That's thisdayministries.org. In addition, if you have been blessed by the teaching of God's Word during This Day in the Word, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is info at thisdayministries.org. Thanks again for listening as we strive to honor Christ and impact our world as we spend this day in the Word.